afternoon. Thanks, Lucy. I'm not sure any of us know the difference between the Stavs pronunciation or the ancient Hebrew pronunciation, so you're okay. Good job. Good to see you all. Uh, let's start with a couple of questions. How would you answer these questions? What does it mean to belong to church? Or what does it mean to be a member of KCC? How would you answer those questions? I'd guess some of us would talk about family, community. We might talk about the beliefs that unite us. Or we might talk about the benefits and responsibilities we have. How many of you would honestly answer that question with, we're a team of builders? Well, I think that's what Nehemiah 3 teaches us. God's people are a team of builders. Uh, if I'd had more time, I was going to Photoshop all the elders' photos and put hard hats and high beers vests on just to show we are a team of builders. But I didn't get the time. But we'll look at the passage. Uh, we'll see what it meant for the people then and try and apply it to ourselves. What does it mean for us? It's pretty obvious in the passage, isn't it? The people are building. But what does that mean for us here today to be a team of builders? Again, a question, and you can be honest because I'm not going to ask you to share the answer. As Lucy struggled with those pronunciations, what was your reaction when you heard that passage or if you've read it before coming? Lots of hard-to-pronounce names. Maybe just a little bit boring. A list of people, a list of places, and the jobs they did. And that might seem justified on a service. You know, if I stood here and tell you we'd had some building work done on our home, we have our downstairs reconfigured, two bedrooms reconfigured. You might be interested to start with. You might be interested to hear how we use the space differently. Now it's been changed. But well, I'm not sure you'd want to hear the name of every person involved in every task they did. So Bob drew up the plans. Wendy knocked down the old wall. Farmer Pickles took the rubble away. Benjamin Dixon delivered the materials. JJ pulled in the support beam with Spud's help. Molly plastered the walls. Bill Beasley fitted the new kitchen units. Mr. and Mrs. Sabatini delivered and fitted the new oven. Bernard Bentley inspected all the work and so on. And seeing who's smirking, who recognises Bob the Builder character, yeah. But if I was sharing that with you beyond just the general thing, if every single person involved I named and told you what they did, I think you'd lose patience. I think you'd get a bit bored. You might be polite, but you wouldn't be really paying much attention. I suppose my concern is there's a danger you respond that way to Nehemiah 3, because that's what it seems like on the surface, a list of people, a list of jobs they did and where they worked. And it might be tempting to switch off, to skip over this chapter and move on to things we think are more exciting. But this is God's word. 32 verses in one chapter preserved for us by God. These verses, this record of workers and the tasks they completed, have been recorded for us for a purpose, much to tell us and teach us. So with that in mind, let me pray for us before we really get into it. Lord, as we come to your word, would we come with the right attitude? Would we not put off by the, the names we struggle to pronounce? Would we look beyond this seeming to be just a list of names of people and places and jobs they did? Give us humility to receive your word, to be changed by it. And so, Lord, we ask that your spirit be at work. We'd have ears to hear your voice, minds to understand, and hearts ready to be changed for your glory. Amen. 
So we see in chapter three of Nehemiah, a group of Israelites rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, a physical reality. But for us, we're going to look at what the spiritual reality is, how that applies. Well, actually, again, it may not be immediately obvious, but for those Israelites, there was a spiritual reality for what they were doing at that time too. And I think we're going to see that actually this is a lived out picture of what our church vision looks like in practice. When we think of their their physical and spiritual task and apply it to our spiritual task, it's our church vision, making disciples as disciples, worshipping God as family, telling the gospel, doing good. This chapter teaches us many important things about what it means to be the people of God. God's people are builders, God's people are a team, and God's people worship God. Like I said, I think it's obvious. The people in the passage are building. That's what they're doing all the way through. That's the purpose of Nehemiah's return to Jerusalem was to rebuild the wall, re-establish Jerusalem. He'd done all the preparation. We heard about that in chapters one and two, the planning, but now the work needed doing. And we see almost all the people stepped up and played their parts. So the work God had given to his people was to rebuild a place for God's people where they could worship God and live under God's rule. We know in the Old Testament for God's people, uh, the kingdom of God had quite a strong physical dimension to it. The promised land, Israel, and especially Jerusalem where the temple was. These are the things that they thought of as being God's kingdom. God's place for God's people under God's rule here on earth. So as these people were building the wall, yes, there were benefits for them. It would give them greater security, which would probably lead to greater prosperity and a greater standard of living. But I think their motivation was more than that. It was to restore God's kingdom. And in so doing, they would restore the reputation of God. Their motivation, their main motivation was the glory of God. And as we go through now, we see later in the book, They also had other people in mind. They weren't just building a wall for their own protection. They were building a place that other people could come to as a place of refuge and safety. And it was a place from where God's word would go out to the world around. So they had a physical task, but it had very clear spiritual motivations. So they were building something physical and spiritual. Do you think of yourself as a builder? Do we think of ourselves here as builders? Or maybe the people in Nehemiah 3 didn't think of themselves as builders either. There are families, men, women, parents, sons, daughters, people from the surrounding areas, but not one person listed is recorded as being a builder. We have priests, goldsmiths, perfume makers, rulers, guards, and merchants. And if you're going to build a wall, I'm not sure perfume maker or priest would be the people you'd turn to to come and do that for you. But for this building project, the only two qualifications needed were, are you one of God's people and are you willing to join him? I think it's the same for a state. You don't have to be a builder. You might not think you're much of a builder. You could be a perfume maker or a teacher or an engineer or a student or an optician, a web signer or an office manager. no special skills required. God has given us a building task, two criteria. Are you one of God's people 
Are you willing to do the work? Of course, our building is different. We're not actually going to build a wall around Kenilworth. We're not going to build a wall around the church and cut ourselves off from everybody else. The Israelites in Nehemiah chapter 3 were building some physical and spiritual, but we're focused on something just spiritual. Building God's kingdom here on earth. God's people living under God's rule. A kingdom every believer is a citizen of. And a kingdom that we invite others to join. Our building project is the Great Commission. Make disciples across the whole world. As we take the gospel into our communities, as it spreads across the nation and around the world, we are building, building God's kingdom. Or as it it is described in 2 Corinthians 5, we're ambassadors with a clear message. We're calling people to be reconciled to God and join this kingdom. Surely, as God's people, we enjoy the blessings of what Jesus has done for us. We know what it means to be reconciled to God. We know how God has made this possible through Jesus, and we want others to know the joy of knowing what it is to proclaim Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Our building task is to make disciples as disciples, as people turn to Jesus in faith and repentance. They join the building team and they're part of the building. So we read in 1 Peter 2, each and every one of us who has come to Jesus part of a spiritual house, part of the building, we're in God's kingdom. And similar language used elsewhere in Hebrews 3, Ephesians 2, we are God's house. We're built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So everyone who calls themselves a Christian is part of the building, but we're also the builders disciples and disciple makers. Uh, The building work in Nehemiah 3 is not described in great detail, but I'm sure it doesn't take much for us to imagine what was going on. They would have had to collect resources and raw materials. Nehemiah did bring some, but they would have had to collect more. Then they would shape the stones so they would sit on top of each other, cut wood, join pieces together. Lots and lots of things to do before you actually construct a wall. And I would imagine as they were building, there'd be times when parts had to be undone and restarted, or mistakes made and remedial work needed. Or maybe I'm just thinking their work is like my DIY, but they probably had to undo some of it or make some of it good. But what I want us to understand really clearly that it wasn't a one-off thing. They didn't just throw a load of stones on the ground and a wall appeared. It was a process, a number of steps along the way. They didn't just collect stones and pile them on top of each other and hope somehow from that a city wall would be made. Because we should understand our building task is also a process. Yes, it starts with mission and evangelism. As we're reminded in passages like Romans 10, We need to tell the gospel so that people will become part of the building that is God's kingdom. It starts there. But it does not end when someone is converted. So building a wall involves more than piling up a load of bricks. Building God's kingdom involves more than metaphorically piling up a load of saved souls. We're not just counting converts. 
we read in many places around the New Testament, making disciples and being disciples is a lifelong commitment. The building work is only complete when we're all fully mature in Christ, when we become more like Jesus. And how do we know if that's happening? How do we know if this spiritual wall is being built? Well, as our faith transforms us, as we work in partnership with the Holy Spirit, our behaviours will change. We will do good. Our good works will witness to our faith. Our good works are a witness of what the kingdom of God is like. And our good works will bring glory to God. So disciples who are disciple makers tell the gospel and do good. So yes, we are builders. We tell the gospel so others will become part of the kingdom. But we're also part of the building. The raw materials that need to be shaped and prepared, ready to be part of the finished building, becoming more like Jesus and doing good. Now, humanly speaking, you might think this building task is monumental and overwhelming. You might feel intimidated as you consider, well, what you're saying is we need to make disciples of the whole world and we need to become fully like Jesus. But those things seem impossible to us. But for the Israelites in Nehemiah's time, they may not have thought it was impossible, but that task they were given, that building work they were to do would have seemed ambitious and challenging. If it was easy, they wouldn't have needed Nehemiah to come along. It would have been done already. But we know they got on with it. And we'll hear in the coming weeks in the chapters to come that they completed it. So what motivated them? As they looked at those ruins, as they looked at the walls that have fallen down, the wooden gates that have been burnt. What motivated them? Well, we read it in Nehemiah 2, didn't we? 2, verses 18 and 20. They were persuaded that God was in it and that God would give them success. Their confidence was not in themselves and in their own abilities. Their confidence was in God, as ours should be today. As we face this building task we have of becoming more like Jesus and making disciples across the world, we already know what the finished building will look like. We know what the outcome of this work will be. We read in Revelation 7, there will be an uncountable number from every nation, tribe, people and language, all in the kingdom of God, praising their saviour, Jesus. So if we take on this task of building, making disciples as disciples, we We know Jesus is with us and God will give us success. As we tell the gospel and do good, God will use it for his purposes and for his glory. And then the second part, we're a team. And I think as well as knowing God is with us and God will give us success, it should encourage us that we're not in this on our own. We're in it as part of a team. That list of difficult to pronounce names in Nehemiah 3 was like the team sheets for the team that rebuilt that wall. We hear in verse 5, there was one group actually who did not play their part. But I think the fact they are named and shamed and listed in that way is a clue that everyone else did their bit. If you pick out one group and say, well, these guys didn't do their parts, that leads me to believe that everyone else did. But we don't know the exact number, but we read of over 40, well, I've called sub-teams. One large team, all the people have got there in Jerusalem, divided into sub-teams, doing their parts. And actually illustrating for us, I think, how an effective team of God's people should operate. 
It was a task too big for one person or even a small team. It needed all of them. Our building task to make disciples as disciples is a task far too great for any one of us on our own. So we're going to learn some principles, hopefully, from Nehemiah's team. Firstly, teams need leaders. Sports teams have managers, coaches and captains. Orchestras have conductors. Businesses have directors and managers, for example. The Israelites had Nehemiah. Nehemiah led them by setting a clear vision and purpose, planning and preparing for the task, communicating all of that clearly to the team. And we see he would encourage and motivate the team. He would coordinate them and he would deal with the opposition and challenges that came along. But as a group of God's people, I think the most important thing Nehemiah did in terms of leadership was he allowed himself to be led by God. So as God's people here, we need leaders. We're not going to set their own vision and purpose. We need leaders who will prayerfully seek God's will and who are being led by God as Nehemiah was. Because Jesus is the leader of God's team. For those of us who are elders, leaders of the local church of justice, the Bible says under shepherds, you might think as deputies, leading a sub-team, but we're under the leadership of Jesus. The next teams are one body with many parts. For example, a collection of double bass players is not much of an orchestra, or 11 goalkeepers do not make much of a football team. And the, the, the illustration we have in the New Testament is in 2 Corinthians 12, the, the illustration of using a body to describe the church. And I think what we read here in Nehemiah 3 has echoes then in 2 Corinthians 12. Nehemiah did not do all the work. He provided leadership, but relied on many others to contribute so that the task got done. As it says in 2 Corinthians, there are many parts but one body. Many different parts playing their parts. So we have a variety of roles. It was not a team of leaders. We have a saying, too many chiefs, not enough Indians. The, the problem you face when you have too many people on a team who want to lead and not enough people who will just go on with doing the work. You do need people who will perform those different roles. As it says in 2 Corinthians, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And even though Nehemiah is the leader, he's not given more value or worth because of his role. And I think often we mistakenly think those who lead deserve more honour or are, have more value. But it says in 2 Corinthians, the parts we think are less honourable, we treat with special honour. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. And as I said, there was one group who didn't play their part, the nobles of Tekoa. Maybe they thought it was beneath them being nobles. Well, it says in 2 Corinthians, we shouldn't have that attitude. Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. It's not the right attitude. There should be no division in the body. I think it's clear in the rebuilding of the war that those Israelites achieved more together than they ever could do apart. And another thing we have, the sum is greater than the parts. Here was a group working side by side. Each smaller team, sub-team, was given a section of war to work on. And I think it doesn't take much imagination to think they would have worked together, cooperated, assigned different tasks to different people in the team. But what's maybe not so obvious is there would have been points when they would have met, 
where their walls met. The two different sub-teams would have had to coordinate and cooperate as well and collaborate. It would have been pretty odd if they just left gaps between the different sections of the wall. They had to make sure they fit together. And again, in 2 Corinthians, it tells us that God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. It is an interdependent organism. So what does this mean for us? Well, we're in a period where we're looking for a new full-time elder, and there's lots of excitement around that, lots of anticipation. But I think we need to make sure we have the right expectations. We're not employing a full-time elder to come and do all the work for us. That really is not what it's about. We're, we're calling somebody who will come and work alongside the other elders to lead the church. Because each of us actually has a role to play. We have to find our place in the team. We need to think, where am I most effective? What part can I play? How can I contribute to this task we have? Because we are interdependent. If we have people who are not playing that part, the rest of us cannot function properly. We depend on one another. We're not a team that can afford to have spectators. Obviously, if you're a visitor or if you're not a Christian, we understand that you're observing. But for those of us who are committed here as Christians, we're part of the team and need to get involved. And it's easy, isn't it? If you think of a sports team, imagine a netball team. Only seven players go out for a match and start of the match, three of them go, actually, this week, I just feel like watching. You've got four on the pitch, overwhelmed, not able to compete. But it also means we can have people who think they can do it all. Few people try to do everything because that then blocks opportunities for other people. Um, actually, as I was sat there, start, I kind of, maybe this is the one I need to do. You heard my name up for a few different things. And I had a message from my mum this week, which I didn't take too well. She told me at my age, I need to slow down and stop doing so much. <laughs> Maybe this is the one I need to listen to. We don't need people who think they can do it all. We don't, if you're in a rugby team, who's ever played for a rugby team or has watched rugby, has an idea of rugby teams? Can you imagine if you have one player who wanted to take the line outs, take the penalties, be in the scrub, score the tries, just get the ball all the time? I think the other players would get a bit fed up and it would actually not be a very effective team at all. And it's a bit like, um, you might have heard of the 80-20 rule, also called the Pareto Principle, where 20% of the team do 80% of the work. And that does happen in lots of places, but it shouldn't happen in church. It shouldn't happen in church. Every part of the body has an invaluable, necessary contribution to make. We are interdependent. But that also means there's no room for lone rangers or rebels, people who decide... They'll not do the work they've been given, or they won't do it the way they've been asked. They're going to do their own thing. And again, another illustration, what if you had an orchestra and you had a handful of the musicians decided they weren't going to follow the conductor, they weren't going to play the music they were given, they were going to do their own thing. The whole thing would sound terrible, which is what I think of jazz, which is where they do that, but that's personal opinion. If you have team members who decide not to do the work they've been given, in the way they've been asked, that is not neutral for the rest of the team. It has a negative impact. I think it also has a spiritual impact. When you have an interdependent team, but some of the team are working independently, then gaps appear. 
gaps appear amongst team members, and it's those gaps that Satan will exploit, where he'll try to divide and separate us further. So it's necessary for our work, but also spiritually necessary for our relationships. We need to be working side by side, collaborating, cooperating, whatever we need to. We could write, hopefully, a similar chapter to Nehemiah 3 about KCC, the Harris's working alongside the Chartons, working alongside the Dawson's, working alongside the Spartans, working alongside the Binghams, alongside the Kings, alongside the Merkits, and so on. We are a team working side by side, interdependence. And we will achieve far more together than we would do independently. Imagine if the story for Nehemiah's time had been different and they hadn't cooperated and worked as a team, but they'd all gone off. Nehemiah said, I want you to build a wall. And they'd just gone to a random place with random materials and built a wall anywhere they liked. I really don't think they would have ended up with a city wall all the way around Jerusalem. It would have been a random collection of walls. We need to work together if we're going to fulfill this task we've been given. And I think that's going to require deep, genuine unity. I think it's easy to start with what many Christians, many churches I've visited, mistake unity for. We've got to get beyond this. Unity is not being polite and friendly to one another. It is not never having any disagreement or conflict. It is not enjoying social time together. It is not having shared interests and hobbies. I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things. Hopefully you will be polite and friendly to me after the service. But that doesn't mean we're united, not in a deep and meaningful way. Because our unity comes from knowing, actually I've used orchestras and teams and business sports teams to illustrate what I'm saying, but we're more than that. We're not the religious equivalent of a sports team, an orchestra or a business. We're God's family. We're united by who we are in Christ. We're united because we share the same Holy Spirit. We're united because we enjoy the same blessings from God. When we were saved and redeemed by Jesus, we were not just saved from our sin and the consequences of sin and future judgment. We were also saved into something, into the church, into God's family. We're reconciled to God and we're reconciled to one another. So the Israelites in Nehemiah's time knew that they were united as God's people and today we're united as God's family. I think also real unity, real fellowship comes from having a shared task and purpose. True fellowship comes when family members serve together side by side with a shared purpose and task. So my challenge to us is that we should be a family committed to one another serving one another, sacrificing for each other, working together, recognising God has called us to be a team of builders. Let us make disciples as disciples, as family. And as I said, the concept of builders and team, I think, are straightforward in the passage. But the third thing I said is God's people worship God, and that may not be quite so obvious on first reading. So we need to recall the context and think a little bit more why uh, it is worship. So the context, there were many of the Israelites were actually in exile. And Israel is under the control of a foreign king. There's only this remnant that was left in Jerusalem. We know the walls and gates have been destroyed and burned. And we hear about enemies surrounding 
the Israelites. They had limited resources and money. And then Nehemiah turns up and says, God wants us to rebuild this wall. I think they've had many reasons to think that's not such a great idea, Nehemiah. Or uh, maybe that's not for me and would politely decline to get involved. But we don't read that's what they did. We actually read, apart from that very small group, they played their part, they contributed. Why? Why would they be so willing when they looked at the scale of the task in front of knowing the challenges they would face? What motivated them to say yes? They were building a physical wall, but they had spiritual significance. And those clues around the spiritual significance come from Nehemiah 1 and 2 and other parts later in the book. But I think if we just, again, try and understand what's going on, we help us see that it is an act of worship. Put yourself in their story. You are part of that remnant. Still living in Jerusalem and life is hard. Repeatedly attacked and oppressed with no defences. Much of what you have is taken from you. You're probably only left with enough to barely survive. Under the rule of a foreign king, and you cannot do anything without permission. Anything that even looks like potential rebellion would be quashed. On top of all of that, this building work looks really, really, really hard. What would you say to Nehemiah when he said, let's rebuild this wall? Well, the Israelites said yes. And I think they said yes for a number of reasons. One, it was an act of obedience to God. Nehemiah told them and convinced them that this was God's command. It was also about their faith, their faith in who they believed God is, and that God would give them success. It was also about their faithfulness, their faithfulness to God as his people, meaning that they would want to see his name glorified. And it was about their love, their love for God, that whatever sacrifices they realized would be necessary, whatever cost they would bear, it would all be worthwhile to glorify God's name. So building this war was an act of loving, faithful obedience rooted in their faith in God. And I think that's a great description of what it means to worship God. Ultimately, they built it for the glory of God. And, and I know it's easy to do, but we often just reduce, when we talk about worship, just think about singing. But Romans 12 reminds us it's much more than that. To worship God is to give ourselves, to be willing to sacrifice all we have to serve God and his church in loving obedience. It is to direct all of who we are and all that we have to the glory of God. And when we acknowledge who God is, what he's done for us through Jesus, then we realise he's worthy of all the praise and worship we can possibly give him. So as you reflect on what does it mean for you to be part of a team of builders here at KCC, I think you need to consider what's going to motivate you to get involved. Um, I'm pretty sure just me standing up here telling you you should get involved isn't going to be enough to motivate you and sustain you when things get hard. Maybe I hope you're persuaded that these things do come from God's word and that hopefully will be more motivating. But is that going to sustain you when it's tough? I think we need more than that. So these are two questions you should ask yourself. Do I love God and want to see his name glorified? Am I going to worship God by giving him everything I am and everything I have? 
if you can answer yes to those questions, then hopefully that leads you on to say, I will sacrificially serve God and his people. I will help build God's kingdom no matter what the cost. I will fully commit to KCC as my family and be part of this team. To commit to building God's kingdom as part of his family is a loving act of faithful obedience rooted in our faith in God. It is an act of worship. It is not an act of duty. I'm not calling you to do this because you should, but because you want to and want to worship God. It is a privilege to be part of building God's kingdom alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ. Building something of eternal significance is a great privilege. There is nothing greater in all this world you could give your time and energy to. So Nehemiah teaches us, God's people are builders, God's people are a team, God's people worship God. And if we commit to that, we can pull it another way. We will make disciples as disciples, worshipping God as family, telling the gospel and doing good. Let's pray. But we thank you for your words. We thank you for the work you did through Nehemiah and the people in that time. Lord, but as we reflect on that and what it means and how we apply that to ourselves, we ask that your spirit would open our eyes and our hearts to the reality of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. To be people who are builders, building the kingdom of God by telling the gospel and doing good. To be people who are part of a team, part of God's family. And to be people who want to worship God with all we are and all we have. Lord, help us to play our part in this. Would you just provoke those people who need to be doing more? Challenge those people who are doing too much. Lord, you help us to work out as a family, as a body, the role each of us has to play. Would we recognise we are interdependent on one another? Would you grow our love for one another and our unity would deepen? Lord, we pray these things not for our own sake, but for the glory of your name. Amen.